0: Chapter eighteen, please. Been a good service so far, hopefully not ruined by the preacher. Good singing. Appreciate Aaron entertaining us with his with his act. When we went out to Central City at the end of the year and preached, of course, that's where the rices are, and I had to tell a rice story. And one of my favorite ones is the Wednesday night that he came in to lead singing in his well-intentioned but mismatched khaki pants and khaki coat to be abused and accosted by Dave Wormley, only for Dave to realize at the offering that he was wearing two different shoes. And I, I said to the church, you know, I realized that, that my lot in life was to pastis, was to, to be the pastor of Three Stooges Baptist Church at that moment. So it's just all in a day's work for me. <clears throat> whatever time of day it is, whatever text you have turned to, I'm in First Chronicles 18, I think. Let's go ahead and stand, please. And we will read the entirety of the chapter. Now after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them and took Gath and her towns out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. And David smote Hadarezer, king of Zobah, unto Hamath as he went over to establish his dominion by the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven thousand horsemen and 20,000 footmen David also hewed all the chariot horses but reserved of them an hundred chariots and when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadarezer king of Zobah David slew of the Syrians two and 20,000 men then David put garrisons in Syria Damascus and the Syrians became David's servants and brought gifts thus the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadarezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Likewise, from Tibhath and from Coon, cities of Hadarezer, brought David very much brass, wherewith Solomon made the brazen sea and the pillars and the vessels of brass. Now, when Tao, king of Hamath, heard how David had smitten all the host of Hadarezer, king of Zobah, he sent Haderadim his son to King David to inquire of his welfare and to congratulate him because he had fought against Hadarezer and smitten him. For Hadarezer had war with Tau, and with him all manner of vessels of gold and silver and brass. Then also King David dedicated unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he brought from all these nations, from Edom and from Moab and from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines and from Amalek, Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, slew, all of the, slew of the Edomites in the Valley of Salt, 18,000. And he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. Thus the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. So David reigned over all Israel and executed judgment and justice among all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahuliad, the recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests, and Shavshah was scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Karathites and the Pelathites, and the sons of David were chief about the king. And we will stop there. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray for your help this evening to, as always, appreciate and understand your word, to grasp its meaning, to think even of Old Testament passages in light of the fact that we are New Testament people, to be able to extract from them the spiritual nourishment that we need for our own lives and our own circumstances. Bless, please, I pray tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, of course, again, at the risk of being overly repetitive, this is a book written to people, a history book written to people. It is writing to them about things that they are not going to recover. They are under a Gentile ruler, and they will remain under Gentile rulers. There is no coming back from the destruction that they have visited. But they are God's people, and they have returned to God's land And they are being reminded about God's activity. And critical to the existence of the kingdom as they knew it was King David. Not their first king, but their greatest king. The man who would become the benchmark. And not just in an academic sense the benchmark, but the man who would be the named descendant or named ancestor of the true king, Jesus the Messiah. And so much of First Chronicles, virtually all of First Chronicles after the genealogies, is focused upon David and his reign, how he became the king, how he lived as king, what his orientation was as king. Chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 are focused upon the significance of the Ark of the Covenant with reference to David that small piece of furniture that emblemized the very presence of God. David knew, we'll look at this at a later date, David knew, as did his son Solomon. Solomon made note of this at the dedication of the temple, the building that is built to house the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God was. Solomon, in his introductory prayer, takes note of the fact that God cannot be confined to a building. Right? New Testament believers have the presence of God. The Spirit of God lives in New Testament believers, but God could in no way be confined to a human body. He is way too large for that, way too extensive for that. And now our attention turns a little bit. <clears throat> Chapters 18, 19, and 20 focus specifically, at least this is the way that I'm going to present it, upon the success of David's kingdom. David was not just simply a godly man. David's kingdom was a successful kingdom. And that really does matter, folks, because if David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom become the benchmark for Christ's kingdom, it is helpful for us to note that the kingdom is a successful operation. The chapter kind of unfolds by pointing out to us two different pieces of information. One occupies the bulk of the chapter We will look first at it, and that is verses 1 through 13, which are an explanation of David's military victories. Verses 1 through 13 are an explanation of David's military victories. Note, for instance, in verse number 1, After this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them and took Gath and her towns out of the hand of the Philistines. No No army could withstand him. Everybody that David fought, he defeated. David smote the Philistines. It's a really a very violent word strike, beat, kill, slay, destroy, subjugate. It was not a friendly contest, it was a knockdown, dragout, total war. And he subdued them. He went to war with them, he subdued them. He humbled them, and he brought them low. To get a little bit ahead of myself, folks, one of the the ways that the kingdom of Christ is described, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is that Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And even to this day, folks, iron is not noted for its flexibility. It is a complete domination He smote Moab in verse number 2, and the Moabites become his servants and bring tribute. He smites the king of Zobah in verses 3 through 6. We have just read them. I will not read through them again unless we need to look at a particular part of the text. This is a part of the world that is Syria. This is part of Syria. And David captured soldiers and chariots and when other Syrians from another part because Syria didn't exist as as we would think of it but it was still the same body of land. David smote them. And the word in verse number 5, slew, is the same word smote in verse number 1. And these people were all subjugated and brought David gifts. And as the text indicates, folks, that Much of the material that David gathered that he amassed to use for the construction of the temple is the money that he won in conquest. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Will son Solomon write at a later time? The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. And in verses 12 and 13, he smote the Edomites. And they became his servants. No army could withstand him. He did not lose a battle. Not that, no riches were withheld from him. Verse number seven, he took the golden shields from the Syrian Hadarezer. He did the same thing to other cities. In verse number eight, he smote them and he plundered them of their goods. Goods that are the materials used. Specifically, you're told there, to build the temple, to construct the artifacts in the temple. So no army can withstand him, and no riches are withheld from him. But then, and we will see this again, no graciousness is withheld by him. Look specifically, if you would please, at verses 9, 10, and 11. Now when Tao king of Hamath, heard how David had smitten all the host of Hadarezer, king of Zobah. <clears throat> he sent Hadarim, his son, to king David to inquire of his welfare and to congratulate him, because he had fought against Hadarezer and smitten him. <clears throat> For Hadarezer had war with Tal, and with him all manner of vessels of gold and silver and brass. Them also king David dedicated unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he brought from all these nations from Edom and from Moab, from the children of Ammon, from the Philistines and from Amalek. So when somebody wises up and rather than bringing an army brings gift, David welcomes that. Now certainly Tao is a man driven by self-interest. That's not the point, folks. The point is that neither David nor Christ are bloodthirsty savages. Who wage war randomly for the sake of bloodlust because they like to kill things and watch them die. When David went to war, there was a purpose to it and he was successful. And he conquered with a view to conquest, but he is willing to be gracious. And then this is particularly noteworthy, folks, if we were Hebrews, if we were living on that sacred ground. No territory is ignored by him. No army can withstand him. No riches are withheld from him. No territory is ignored by him. He conquers Philistine territory. Chapter 8 and verse number 1. He took Gath and her town's out of the hand of the Philistines. This is land that had long been promised to Israel. It's their territory. This is not, as so often happens today, a rewriting of history for the purposes of his political agenda. This is territory God gave to Israel. Israel. You'll notice, folks, what he did in verse number 2. He smote Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. He didn't settle this land, but he did subdue it, and he didn't settle it because this is not his land. Let me ask you, if you would, to stop right here for a moment. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. David takes this land all the way to the Euphrates, 1 Chronicles 18.3 to establish his dominion by the river Euphrates, Deuteronomy chapter 1. And verse number 5, on this side Jordan in the land of Moab began Moses to declare this law, saying, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount, turn you, Take your journey, go into the Mount of the Amorites, and unto all the places nigh thereunto, in the plain, in the hills, and in the vale, and in the south, and by the seaside, to the land of the Canaanites, and unto Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them, and to their seed after them. We'll stop there. For now, Deuteronomy chapter 11, while you're in Deuteronomy 1. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11.22, For if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you, to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to cleave unto him, Then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and ye shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea shall be your coast be the Mediterranean. Or Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 4. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and under the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. So David took all the land unto the Edomites, the land of the Edomites, the Moabites. He didn't conquer that, he subdued it, but he left it for them, it belonged to them. Now, following the trajectory of the Euphrates River is, as you can imagine, following the trajectory of any river is a winding thing, but it begins in Turkey and it flows south into the land of Syria, over onto the far eastern side of Syria, before it begins to take a sharper turn to the east and go over into the land of modern-day Iraq. So exactly what portion of the Euphrates, it's a pretty big, difference in land but the euphrates is the border and the land is promised to them for for the purposes of the text folks right for the purposes of writing this as inspired history to a very dejected people and we will get to that how dejected those people are in the not too distant future here is a reminder about the greatness and the extent of David's army. No kingdom, no army can withstand him. And no territory is denied him. He's, he's got soldiers on the ground in every piece of land that God has promised to give Israel. It is all his. And the conclusion of this section, then folks, is verse number 13. This is the critical note for us. And he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. Thus the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. How do you account for this? How do you account for a man who is invincible and who is unstoppable? God. God is the explanation. This is not a superior mind or superior tactics or advanced weaponry or just, I used to have a guy in the church, he was a good guy, but this was back in the days when I used to play a little golf and we'd play golf and he'd say, I'd rather be lucky than good. This is not sheer luck on David's part. What is the explanation for David's success? Nothing short of Jehovah. Himself, Thus Jehovah preserved David, whithersoever he went. So the first part, the bulk of the chapter, is about David's military victories. The last part of the chapter, beginning in verse number 14, to the end of the chapter, are David's monarchy's virtues. What kind of a kingdom will a man who is such a military success operate. And although I didn't spend a lot of time on this, folks, I could pose that question to you historically. You know, there's a reason, there's a very good reason, why our founding fathers were, number one, very suspicious of standing armies. They liked the militia, they liked the citizen soldiery because they didn't trust governments and they, in particular, didn't trust governments that had guns. And there is a reason that our Founding Fathers wisely selected a civilian to be the head of the military, and that is because of their experiences in their own country of having soldiers be the head of the government what kind of a government will we have when a man of david's caliber as a warrior is in charge this kind verse number 14 so david reigned so david reigned it is the verb form of what of the hebrew noun king David was the king, and what do kings do? They ruled. David ruled. He reigned. And he reigned over all Israel. And again, this is a little word, folks. This is a little expression that you find a lot in Chronicles because it is so very important. Again, not so much to us. We just read right through it. But to this people with their long history of civil war and two nations, and with these biblical prophecies that there will be a reunification, right? Ezekiel 37, 38, 39 folks, those are not, the, the dead bones passage is not really a revival passage. The, the dead bone passage is a reunification passage. That what had been torn apart would be reunited and so here's the note. David reigned over all Israel. Not part of Israel, but all of Israel. And the characteristic of his reign was twofold. It was, first of all, righteousness. Not military brutality. David reigned over all Israel and executed judgment and justice among all his people the decisions that David made as the king were decisions made in righteousness and justice so this was not a strong man government this was not a government in which David was really truly looking over his shoulder to see if there was another stronger gun coming to town to take over. And then the chapter tells us in verses 15, 16, and 17 that this was was an orderly reign. Not an anarchy. David reigned in an orderly fashion. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host and the host is the army. He is the man who is in charge of the military. And Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud the recorder like an official record keeper. And there were priests and there were scribes. And scribe was more of a religious function than a civil function. There were people who executed the religious offices and people who wrote about the law of God. And we really do not know exactly what the Karathites and the Pelathites are, but they seem to be some sort of a royal guard, a, a personal protective bodyguard for the king. And we would take that from 2 Samuel 15, 18. They were chief about the king. They were chief about the king, which again, folks, right, may not seem of critical importance to us, but in America, and we are greatly divided over this, but we have a lot of conversations in America about whether the rule of law is really being followed or not, don't we? There's a lot of apprehension about what's going to happen if the rule of law crumbles. So for a comment to be made about the orderliness of David's kingdom is a significant statement. David was a tremendous warrior, but he was not a warlord. He was a divinely appointed king, a man who ruled According to God's rulings, the way the kingdom should be run. So let me just take now a couple of minutes in closing, as we have done, and just think through some of the ways that this is applicable to us. Well, I would argue, first of all, folks, that one of the great takeaways from the chapter is the reliability of God's Word. The reliability of God's word. It's not an accident, folks, that in the book of Chronicles, David's military victories follow on the heel of the promise made in the Davidic covenant. God had kind of committed himself to David. God had kind of explained to David that David was going to be the king and he was going to be a successful kingdom. And that meant that there were issues that had to be addressed and battles that had to be fought and decisions that had to be made. And the whole thing pivots, folks. The whole thing pivots on 1813. Thus the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. God's kingdom, by God's rules, through God's anointed king, God is faithful to his word. I'm not going to have you turn back to it, but I read to you from two distinct passages, actually three, but Deuteronomy 11 and Joshua 1, in which God talked about the Euphrates being their border. And I deliberately cut off where I did to come back and just refer this to you. You can, you can turn to it, but I'm not going to wait for you to do so. Deuteronomy 11.25, at the end of the first section, There shall no man be able to stand before you, there shall no man be able to stand before you. For the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon as he has said unto you. Biggest takeaway, folks, is that when God tells us to do something, or more specifically, when God tells us that he will do something, we should be learning to to be able to rely upon that word. Joshua 1:5 There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life as I was with Moses so I will be with thee I will not fail thee nor forsake thee God's promises are reliable and true Secondly Christ's kingdom is being previewed What will Christ's kingdom look like And again we we are reminded that this is a le- this is a book written to a group of people who have experienced the collapse of this kingdom they experienced the collapse of this kingdom they probably have family members who could give firsthand accounts of what it was like to be there on the day when jerusalem fell and just like we are folks they are being oriented then to a future kingdom this the the book will take very much that turn right it tells us about the history of the david's kingdom of david's kingdom so that we can more clearly see the future kingdom not so that we can just reminisce about the good old days and wax all sentimental about how glorious it was when david was the king you know <clears throat> It doesn't look from the, the vantage point of the pulpit or the pew in most churches that, that Christ's kingdom is going to come to anything, but it is. It is, folks. The kingdom is coming, and the king is coming. And we are to be eagerly expecting that, not, not fearfully looking over our shoulders and, and thinking that the end is here, but anticipating the kingdom and then finally, folks, this is a bit of a pattern for, for all of God's people in the church, that, that both our lives and the church ministry itself, if you want to confine it to that, to the, to the gathering of God's people, that our affairs should be conducted in righteousness and in justice and in order. Let's pray. Father. Father. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt my own prayer to mention this to you. I, I, somebody mentioned it to me. I did not see it. I don't really look at the church Facebook page that much. But Eric Hutton has had a stroke. Um, it is a mild stroke, and Michelle asked for our prayers, but says he's not really up to visitors. But particularly if those of you that know Eric and know the Hutton's, if you would make it a matter of prayer, they'd appreciate it. So let, now let's return to our prayer. Father, we do pray for Eric and for his healing in all manner physically, emotionally, spiritually. We pray your blessing upon the family. We thank you for our church and pray, Father, that that our church would operate in righteousness and in justice. And that following both this example and the New Testament admonition, everything would be done properly, decently, and orderly. For we are a reflection of you. We are your people a light to the world. We pray for the kingdom to come, for our Savior to arrive, for his will to be done until then. We ask these blessings, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.